Make sure it's recorded. There we go. So Psalm 61 is a psalm of David in which he expresses his trust in God. Uh, David was already serving as the king of Israel when he wrote this psalm, and you can see that when you look at verse 6. Now, the context of the psalm isn't really certain. Uh, some people believe that this context is the same as the context, context of Psalm 60. If you remember last week in Psalm 60, David was battling the enemies of Israel in the northern part of the kingdom and also in the southern part of the kingdom. Other people believe that the context is the rebellion of Absalom. You remember Absalom, that was David's son, who raised up a coup against his father. He briefly took the throne from David and tried to kill his own father. Uh, David fled to the wilderness until Absalom and his followers were ultimately killed, and David was able to return as king. Uh, you can read that in 2 Samuel verse chapters 14 through 18. Now, the background of the psalm really doesn't make much difference in the interpretation of the psalm because the psalm is a very simple psalm. It's a very direct psalm. It's the prayer of a man who's trusting in God. And as a believer in Christ, you can find great encouragement in this psalm. You, you probably noticed that little phrase when I was reading it, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's a beautiful, beautiful verse. And for us as New Testament believers, we know that the rock that is higher than we are is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, because it's in Christ that we find our protection. So here's how we'll outline the psalm, and then we'll look at it uh, at a, piece by piece. In verses 1 and 2, you see the, the prayer of an overwhelmed heart. In verses 3 and 4, you see the protection of our God. And then in verses 5 through 8, you see the praise of a thankful servant. So let's look first of all at the prayer of an overwhelmed heart. It's a sincere prayer that David prays. You see that in verse 1. David says there, Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. David wants the Lord to hear his prayer and he wants the Lord to prove that he has heard his prayer by answering his prayer. Two times in verse 1, David asks God to hear his prayer. For David, it wasn't enough that he prayed. You know, for a lot of people, prayer is enough. And it is a reality that for many people, prayer is just simply a formality. Uh, we have our religious duties, and oftentimes prayer is just one of those religious duties. Uh, we pray when we wake up, we pray before we eat, we pray when we go to bed at night. And, and sadly, many people think very little of their prayers once they're prayed. But that's the fruit of a ritualistic religion. The Pharisees were not a prayerless people. The Pharisees prayed. They prayed often. But they prayed for one simple reason, so that they could tell you that they had prayed. David had no use for a religion like that. David wants God to answer his prayers. It's true that you and I are told in Scripture to watch and pray. We are to watch and pray, but we should also pray and watch. In other words, we should long to see the Lord answering our prayers. When we pray, we understand that we're not just saying empty words, but we're actually having communion with God. We're God's children, and as His children, we should expect that God would hear our prayers and that He would answer our prayers according to His will. Sincere, sincere prayer is actually anxious. It's anxious to see the hand of God move. Sincere prayer trusts that God hears, trusts that God is going to move in the life of those who belong to Him, who cry out to Him. So it's a sincere prayer. But not only is it a sincere prayer, you see in verse 2 that it's a desperate prayer. He says, from the end of the earth will I cry unto thee, when my heart is overwhelmed. 
Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So notice that David offers this prayer from the ends of the earth. Now, now that phrase can be taken in, in two ways. First of all, it could be taken geographically. Uh, David could be very far from Jerusalem when he prays this prayer. And if that's the case, um, it could be that he recognizes he's far from God because he's far from the city of God. He's far from the tabernacle. And in the Jewish mind, Jerusalem, or the tabern- in the tabernacle, that's where the presence of God was. So he feels as if he's far from God. But not only can it be taken geographically, it can also be taken spiritually. David might be using that phrase in a metaphorical way. Perhaps his circumstances have caused him to feel as if he's very distant from God. But there's no reason that this phrase couldn't actually be taken to mean both of those things simultaneously. Uh, The point is, from David's perspective, there's a great distance between him and God. But here's the good news. The good news is that neither space nor circumstance can keep us from prayer. Neither space nor circumstance can keep us from prayer. What do we need to pray? Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought, well, what in the world do you need to pray? Uh, There are some people who think that they need a book of prayer to pray. There are some people who think, well, I need a priest to pray. There are other people who think, well, I need a building to pray. We need none of those things to pray. The only thing we need to pray is Christ. If we have Christ, we can pray. If we have Christ, we can pray despite our location, despite the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we can pray for one simple reason. We have Christ. Now notice David says, when my heart is overwhelmed. The idea there is he's about ready to faint. He's about ready to pass out. You know, there are times when we feel like we, we just can't continue. There are seasons of drought in our life. There are seasons of famine in our spiritual life. But the good news is, despite our circumstances, no matter how tough life gets, no matter what is stripped away from us, we can pray. But not only is it a sincere prayer, not only is it a desperate prayer, but look at verse 2, it's a humble prayer. David asked the Lord to lead him to the rock, that is higher than he is. God is described as a rock many times in Scripture, um, and it's no surprise that David would often use that analogy for God. David called God his rock many times. Now, why is that important? Well, David spent a lot of time in deserted and mountainous regions. And that region, when we think of the wilderness, a lot of times we think of just woods because we live in Georgia and that's what the wilderness is around here. But in in David's uh, time, the wilderness was mountainous. It was regions that were filled with rocks. And that's where he would flee many times when his enemies were trying to kill him. That's where he would flee. And so the rocks to David became a place to hide. The rocks to David became a place where he found security. Now, truly and literally, the rocks were often David's refuge. That's where he went when he needed to hide from his enemies. So David saw the creation of God the rocks, the mountains, as a gift from God, a place where he could hide. These rocks weren't just the result of random chance. They gave him shelter from his enemies. His God gave him these rocks to find safety in. But ultimately, David knew that God was his rock. God was the one in which he found security. God was the one in which he found rest. 
Now notice a couple of things David says. First, he says, lead me to the rock. David is depending on God to lead him to himself. David knows that left to himself, he would never see God. Left to himself, he would never find God by accident. He needs the Lord to lead him to himself. This is exactly what Jesus taught in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no man comes to the Father unless first he is drawn by the Spirit of God. And the second thing he says is he says that the rock is higher than he is. See, here's the interesting thing. David doesn't want to be led to a rock that is his equal. He, he doesn't want the help of man, people who are equal to him. He wants to be led to the rock that is higher than he is. And this is true prayer. True prayer, recognizing I can't do this on my own. There's help I need that people can't give to me. This is where humility comes in. Admitting that we can't care for ourselves. Admitting that even on our greatest days, we are still lacking. And so when we pray, we're admitting to God that we can't take care of ourselves. And we're also admitting to God that our peers people who are just as high as we are, they can't supply what we need. We're recognizing that human beings are not the supreme beings. We need to be led to one who is higher than we are, someone who is smarter, greater, more holy than we are. So he's saying, lead me to one who is greater than humanity. That's higher than I... Now, by the way, David had reached the pinnacle of what a man could do in the Jewish nation. He was the king. So to say, lead me to the rock that is higher, then certainly David's as high as you can get in humanity. But he wants to be led to God, who is higher than humanity. Now the second thing I want you to see here in verse 3 and 4 is the protection of our God. The protection of our God. David uses four different terms in verses 3 and 4 to describe God. Listen to them. For thou hast been a shelter for me, and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. You see, he uses the term shelter, tower, tabernacle, and wings. Now what's really interesting is as he progresses in his metaphors, the metaphors actually become more intimate. He begins with God as a shelter. He ends with God as one who has his wings over him. So let's consider each of these things. First of all, he says God's his shelter. That's in verse 3. That word is often translated as refuge. In Scripture, refuge is closely related to the term rock, um, especially in the Psalms. You see it in Psalm 18.2. In Psalm 31.2, in Psalm 71.3, in Psalm 62.7, and in Psalm 94.22. That refuge and rock are, are almost the same thing there. So for David, his shelter, his refuge, was often a rock. That was his shelter. He hid inside of caves. Therefore, he was inside of a rock. He hid in the cleft of a rock. Sometimes that was all the shelter and all the cover that he had. And so David gives testimony here that the Lord has been a shelter for him in the past. He's remembering hiding in those rocks, 
hiding in those clefts and those caves. He's remembering how he found shelter in those days. And he says, Lord, you have been my shelter in the past. So he's given testimony to what God has done for him in the past. It is a wonderful thing to remember what God has done for us in the past. You know, recalling the grace of God in the past will remind us that the grace of God is going to be waiting for us in the future. So he says, Lord, you've been my refuge. You, you, you've been my refuge and, and my shelter. And look at the next thing. Strong tower, verse 3. So David now, he moves from the wilderness, the shelter, the refuge, to the city. Towers were places of defense. The people in a city, when an enemy was approaching, oftentimes many, many people would run to these towers, run to these forts. And they could house many people at once. And so David here views God as a strong tower. Uh, God can, not on, can, can protect not only one person, but God can protect many people simultaneously. So David goes from being alone out in the, in the wilderness in a cave, God's a shelter. Now he's with many people in the city, in a tower, and God's protected him. So he's, he, he understands that there have been times in his life when God's done that. And then look at verse 4. It says, it's the tabernacle there. There, I will abide in thy tabernacle. Now, no doubt that that's a reference to the tabernacle of God, the place where the Spirit of God dwelt, that the Lord had come down and pitched His tent, tabernacled with the people of God. And as they traveled, what did God do? God traveled with them. And so David understands that this is an even more intimate place. David understands that he wants to abide in the very presence of God in the tabernacle, and he wants to be there forever. And then finally, we see in verse 4, the wings are mentioned. So David sees the wings of God as a place of shelter. Now, as we mentioned when we looked at Psalm 57, the wings of God probably refers to the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. Covering the mercy seat with their wings was two cherubs staring at one another. And it was beneath those wings that God promised to meet with His people. In Exodus 25, verse 22, God promised the people, I will meet you there. I will meet you under those wings. So the wings of God convey a particularly deep intimacy with God. Now we can go on with this a little further and we can talk about like when Jesus did about the mother hen. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you to myself like a mother ga gra grabs her ch uh, chicks, but you would not. So when birds, think about this now, when birds are beneath their mother's wings, if you've ever been on a farm, you've seen this, when birds are beneath their mother's wings, they are against their mother's breast. They are as close to their mother as they can be. And, and, and what does that mean? That means that to be under the wings of God means that you are very near the very heart of God. You are as close to Him as you can be. He has covered you with His wings, brought you to His own breast, just like that mother chicken does with those biddies. So notice the progression. David began taking refuge in a mountain in the wilderness. He moved to a city where there was a strong tower, then he moved to the tabernacle of God, 
And now we see him resting underneath the very wings of God that cover the mercy seat. So with each movement, we see a deeper intimacy. Now let me give you something, a little bit of extra here. I don't want to dwell on this, but I want to give you something extra here. Here's the neat thing, and I'm going to talk about this at the end. You know, when you begin to pray, when you feel far from God and you begin to pray, oftentimes you can feel yourself moving moving from one stage to another. When you started praying, you felt far from God. But as you continued praying before you were through, you felt as if you were near the very heart of God. And I'm not so sure that's not what's happening here in this text. So David believes that that he is eternally secure as well. He's eternally safe. Even though he's at the end of the earth, as verse 1 said, he's still close to God. Spurgeon said of verse 4, and I love this quote, Spurgeon said of verse 4, He who communes with God is always at home. He who communes with God is always at home, and that is certainly true. It's in times of prayer that we can often feel ourselves drawing closer to God. And so if we feel far away from God, we should pray. And we're promised that if we draw near to God in James 4, 8, that God will draw near to us. And when we're close to God, that's when we begin to recognize how secure we are in God. God is our shelter when we're in the wilderness. He's our tower when the enemy pursues us. He's our tabernacle dwelling among us. And He's the sheltering wings covering us with Himself. Now the third thing I want you to see here is the praise of a thankful servant in verses 5-8. through For thou, O God, hast heard my vows. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Thou wilt prolong the king's life and his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So will I sing unto thy name forever that I may daily perform my vows. So notice in verse 5, he begins to praise God for all God has done for him in the past. David says that the Lord has heard his vows. It was very common when you prayed to make a vow during prayer. And what was a vow? A vow was a promise. Now, we shouldn't see that as a bargaining chip. David wasn't trying to manipulate the Lord with some bargain. Uh, These are simply promises to the Lord in response to what the Lord has done for his servant. And it's implied here that David's living a godly life and he's confident that the Lord's going to reward him with the inheritance that belongs to the people of God because he's in covenant with God. Now, it would greatly benefit us to rehearse, I know we've said this already, but to rehearse all that God has done for us in the past. But also, as we rehearse all that God has done for us in the past, to meditate on all that God has stored for us in the future. Did you get that? Remember, rehearse all God has done for you in the past, but also meditate on what God has for you in the future. The Lord has answered many prayers for each of us, but we have more in heaven than we have ever received on earth. Did you get that? Because that's good. We have more in heaven than we have received on this earth, and we've received a lot on this earth. Because when our salvation is complete, and we're with the Lord, we will have more blessings than we can ever imagine. So we should think about all that God has done for us, but we should should also think about all that God has waiting for, for us as well. 
Now I want you to notice in verse six and seven, these are these are this is an interesting part. There is praise for an eternal king in verses six and seven. And and at first it might seem that David is asking the Lord to just let him live a long time. Asking the Lord to give him a long rule as king. Um, David did have a long rule. He, he ruled for 40 years according to First uh, Kings chapter 2, verse 11. But when you look closely at verses 6 and 7, it appears that David's no longer talking uh, about himself um, because he couldn't reign as king forever. He knew that. He knew he was going to die. So clearly David is looking through a prophetic lens here. He's looking in the future and he's seeing not himself, but he's seeing a descendant of his who's going to have an eternal rule. You remember the prophet Nathan told David that one of his descendants was going to reign eternally. He told him that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Now, who was the descendant of David that's going to reign eternally? You know who that is. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a descendant of David, and He is the eternal King who fulfilled the prophecy of Nathan. David doesn't need to be king forever. Remember, he just asked to be led to a rock that's higher than him. So he doesn't need to be king forever. So he's clearly looking and he's seeing prophetically here a coming king coming through the line that he came from, the line of Judah there, and he's going to be an eternal king. You know, thank God for Jesus because as our eternal king, we never have to worry about anyone stealing his throne. And because Christ is our eternal king, we can rest easy. There's no reason for us to worry because we're headed to a kingdom where there will never be a change in office when it comes to the king. He will reign forever. And then we see in verse 8, praise that never ends. So will I sing praise unto thy name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. So we see two things in verse 8. First, David says he's going to sing praise to the Lord forever. You know, the psalm began rather somberly, didn't it? You know, he's saying, I'm so far away from you, God. But it ends with great celebration. Spurgeon said of this verse, we ought not to leap in prayer and limp in praise. We ought not to leap in prayer and limp in praise. And I agree with him because too often we pray more than we praise. We ask more than we adore. We're good at telling the Lord what we need, but not so good at thanking God for what we've already received. And so let us not leap in prayer and limp in praise. Let us leap in both. Now, also notice that he says he's going to thank God forever. Now, in order to thank God forever, guess what you have to do? In order to thank God forever, you've got to live forever. I mean, if you, if, you, if you can't live forever, then you can't thank God forever. And so anybody who looks at the Old Testament and thinks that in the Old Testament they didn't believe in eternal life, they didn't believe in life after death, because I've heard many people say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they didn't even think about you living. They just thought you died. Why would David say this then? He, he says, look, I want to praise God forever. You can only praise God forever if you live forever. And David knows that his life is not going to end when he dies. Because when he dies, he knows that he's going to be taken to the presence of the Lord where he's going to praise God forever. Now listen to me, friend. We will either praise God forever or curse God forever. We will either praise God forever or curse God forever. We cannot do both. No one in hell will praise God and no one in heaven will curse God. And, and if we're on our way to heaven, the place to where we will only praise God, let's be people of praise right now.
So the first thing is David says he's going to sing praise to the Lord forever. The second thing is David says he's going to daily perform his vows. What does that mean? That simply means that he's going to be faithful to do everything that's expected of him. He has made promises to the Lord to live his life for him. He's going to honor that. He's going to live for the glory of the Lord. His faith is going to be accompanied by works. You know, our works praise God, not just our lips, but our works praise God. Our works glorify our Father which is in heaven. We don't just praise the Lord with our lips. We praise Him with our lives too. Uh, not only are our works a praise to God, our good works, but also our good works may lead others to praise God. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew five sixteen? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But our works praise the Lord. When you live your life for the glory of the Lord, God is glorified. And not only are you glorifying the Lord, but there may be other people who see you living your life for the Lord, who hear you preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel. They get saved, and now they are glorifying the Lord. Why? Because your light was shining. And that's why it's really important that we live our life for the Lord. And Psalm 61 begins with David at the ends of the earth. And it ends with David in the very throne room of God. And so the lesson that we get from that is when we find ourselves feeling very far from God, we should pray. And we should pray earnestly. We should pray sincerely. We should pray in humility. And as we pray, I'm sure that the Lord will draw us away from the ends of the earth and beneath His sheltering wings, and we will find ourselves very soon next to the very heart of God. And what will our response be? Our response will be praise. Our response will be praise. So Psalm 61 is, is a beautiful psalm. A psalm that, that reminds us that when we feel far, far away from God, to simply cry out in prayer and find ourselves drawn back into a relationship that's deep, and abiding. Amen? That was good. A little shorter tonight than normal. 26 minutes there. Short psalm. We want to have a time of prayer now. Um, we certainly want to pray for weather this Sunday, for good weather uh, this Sunday. So uh, everybody pray for that right now. It's saying we're not going to have any rain. Um, 